airline tickets dropped down on her. With the wife's husband seeing that her wish was granted, he said, I want a wife 30 years younger. And poof, he was 90. <laughs> and he had it coming for saying that. <clears throat> yeah. All right. Well, when it comes to ministry in the local church, it seems that many today have a lot of human plans and promotions and, and ideas of how they're going to keep a church stable or people coming. But that wasn't the approach as we've seen many times of the Apostle Paul. He understood that every believer in the local church must be an important, vital part of that ministry. Throughout the New Testament letters, we read that we are commanded to obey the word of God and just as recruits in the military obey the commander in charge, so we are to be obedient. In a battle with an army, it's not just the officers that show up to fight. Everyone's required to do their part. Can you imagine an army that functions like many local churches, where the soldiers show up if they feel like it, or they don't obey the orders given unless they're in agreement or it's convenient? Well, Scripture presents believers as God's soldiers, and we know we're in spiritual warfare. And one day, each of us as his shoulders, soldiers will give an account of our lives. Did we long and love for love his appearing? Was our life characterized by obedience and deeds that honor him? Well, Paul's life in ministry is such a great example for us to follow. He was someone dependent on the Lord for every single aspect of his life in ministry. He also depended on the prayer support of fellow believers. He understood that the prayer of fellow believers is what opened the door for ministry and what gave him the power to carry on as a witness. So we look at Paul trusting the Lord and with the spread of the gospel. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men for not all have faith. So Paul begins this last section of his letter with finally, it doesn't mean I'm finished just yet, but rather for the rest of what he has to say, he's going to move away from speaking of future events and prophecy and now going to deal with personal issues of godliness. He requests that these believers pray for him and his missionary team. His priority in seeking their prayer was not first for their health and safety, but for the word of God to spread and to be glorified. This was the most important thing on Paul's heart. This was his top concern and priority. I couldn't help but contrast this with a typical prayer time, whether it's in my own devotions, public prayer, your prayer time in your small groups, where often we're limiting our prayer requests to only health and protection requests. Of course, those are important issues, but I think sometimes we have a wrong emphasis and a wrong priority. Paul asked for these believers' prayers because he really needed their prayers. Paul was not some super saint operating like a lone ranger who has it all together on his own without any challenges or struggles. His ministry was always trying. It was frequently heartbreaking. And even in the midst of his own personal struggles, he was someone who was always busy ministering to others, teaching and encouraging them, bringing comfort to others. Yet here Paul asked for prayer support, and his biggest concern was for the spread of the gospel message. He desires the gospel to spread rapidly, which means to run quickly, like a soldier running to battle. 
The picture is that of a continual swift progress of the gospel message as it would move out across the land. He also asks that the word be glorified. That happens when the word is recognized for what it is and accepted by faith in those who hear it. Paul looked to Jesus to accomplish his will concerning the spread of the gospel. His dependency was on the Lord. It wasn't on human intuition or skills. He knew that if the gospel was to make impact on people, it was only because God would do it in response to his word and prayer. We're reminded yet again of how critical it is to pray for unbelievers. God's plan to save people works hand in hand with our prayers. And so every week, we should be praying for the impact of the Word of God. On Wednesday nights, we should be praying for the youth, for the Iwana ministries, for Bible studies going on across not just this local area, but across the world, for pulpit ministries, for radio ministries, for correspondence ministries at home and abroad. This requires you have to think when you pray and have focus and also being informed how to pray specifically. That's why keeping up with the request of missionaries or people that you rub shoulders with is, helps equip you to pray intelligently. In verse 2, we see Paul's next prayer request was for the protection of the ones bringing the gospel message to the lost. That's why he asked them to pray that he would be rescued from perverse and evil men. There was a constant threat to Paul and the others working with him as individuals were aggressively evil in their attempt to stop the word of God from going forth. Satan inspires people to be enemies of the gospel and to try to stop the truth from being proclaimed. Not everyone who heard the message was like the Thessalonians. Not all have faith as they did, Paul said. There are many who are hostile and angry about the message that we believe and proclaim, and our culture, it is getting more and more apparent. Well, Paul prayed then for the safety of the believers in verse 3, but the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. So we see from these first verses we've looked at that the shepherd's heart that Paul had was for this flock of believers to be protected. Paul prayed for them to be strengthened, protected from evil, and that they be established and guarded so they wouldn't be impacted by external attacks. Verse 4, Paul expresses confidence in the Lord that they would continue to do what they've been commanded to do. Just like Philippians 1, 6 reminds us that God is going to complete the work that he begins in each of his children. Paul had taught them much truth that they were to be obeying, and these were truths commanded by God as good soldiers of Jesus to be followed. Next, Paul says in verse 5 that the Lord would direct their hearts into the love of God and steadfastness of Christ. The word direct means to clear away obstacles. So Paul is praying that the Lord would remove any obstacles that would be in their hearts so that they would love God faithfully and steadfastly. We've already seen from both of these letters that this church did delight in obeying the Lord and his commands, and they were growing in sanctification. His prayers for them as, is that they would, uh, there would not be any hindrance in their spiritual progress, that it would continue. Paul wanted their inner hearts to be directed to the love of God and steadfastness of Christ. He was confident that they would obey the word, and he was confident they were going to obey 
the command he was about to say. No one enjoys the process of church discipline. When you have small children at home, as you know, it's essential that you make the effort to discipline your children, even though it can be the most exhausting and challenging task on the planet. But this is absolutely necessary for children to be corrected for their defiance and rebellion and disobedience. And so it is with God in the life of his children. He must address their sin. The New Testament speaks of God disciplining all of those who are his children. And one of the ways that he sometimes ends up doing that is through the local church. Romans 16 speaks of discipline because of doctrinal error. Galatians 6 speaks of a believer being taken into sin and needing to be confronted. Titus 3 speaks of the necessary discipline due to a chronic troublemaker. While 1 Corinthians 5, the most familiar, addresses open immorality or other public sins that the church must confront. And as we come to this next portion in the passage, we read about another situation that calls for church discipline. This wonderful church wasn't perfect. They had been confused and discouraged about end-time events, and Paul had written to clarify this to them. But now a new situation had arisen, and I kind of get the feeling from the first chapter or letter that it was already brewing. But this situation had arisen where members of this church had decided to quit their jobs. In the first letter, Paul had said in chapter 5, verse 14, admonish the unruly. So apparently they're were unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. It would appear that some of the people had applied the truth that Jesus was coming at any moment to decide then to quit their jobs. They had decided to just sit around all day. I don't know if they were sky-gazing, whatever. And now they're actually interfering with people who, you know, have jobs and wanting them to support them while they sit and wait. So Paul's going to tell this church how to deal with these unruly, lazy brothers and sisters in Christ in discipline. Verse 6, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the traditions which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but be in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone's not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. Many people throughout, well, ever since the fall, have not liked to work. <laughs> uh, the attitude, the mindset in our culture is just get all the money you can as early as you can and quit so you don't have to go to work anymore. Solomon had rather pessimistic views, and you read the book of Ecclesiastes, for what does a man get in all his labor and all his striving with which he labors under the sun? This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what's the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Well, God's perspective is not that. God's perspective of work is that all work is spiritual. All work is to be done for the glory of God. Work was commanded in the garden before the fall ever happened, 
And work is a gift from God. It provides fulfillment, meaning, and life, and it helps deal with the temptation to be idle. As Paul made clear in other letters, we are to render service as doing it as unto the Lord and not men. So how do we deal with an unruly brother? Well, he makes it very clear. Paul takes discipline in the church seriously. You certainly get a tone of authority in verse 6 when he says, it is a command given to the church in the authority of Christ. It's as if Christ himself is saying, you need to do this. This command is given to the entire church. It's not directed to just elders or deacons. This is a church family matter. The church is responsible to keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life. The word aloof means to shrink back from them. It means to avoid or withdraw from an unruly brother or sister in Christ. Unruly means those who have stepped out of line or stepped out of rank. They are out of step with what the word of God has taught, been taught to them by Paul. When Paul was with them, he had taught them their responsibility was to work hard, to be industrious, but some did not obey. They just ignored that. Paul had taught them to love each other and that Christ would return at any time. And when you love other people, you want to meet their needs. And this is indeed a loving church. It may have been that some tried to take advantage of this loving church and all the compassion they had for others. Perhaps some decided, you know what, why work anymore? The Lord's going to come any moment and these people around here are willing to help take care of my physical needs. So hey, just going to chill and watch the sky. So they sat around all day and used up all of their own money, became gossips, and didn't know what to do with their time. So Paul says to withdraw from such people. It's interesting that church discipline is not limited to just one sin only of like immorality. Clearly here we see discipline for laziness and the failure to repent of that sin of being lazy. So Paul's about to go on and explain that these people knew the truth about being diligent and they had no excuse to behave this way. He tells them that they should know the right thing to do by following the example that Paul and his companions had set for them. They were never undisciplined when they were with this church. Paul had verbally given instruction and backed up the way what he told them to do by the way he lived. They were to imitate Paul as he imitated Christ. Paul and his team had been so industrious, they had worked hard, which is in total contrast to some of these individuals now in the church. In verse 8, Paul goes on to explain that he was a man who tried to sponge off of other people. Certainly there are times when someone would have had him for dinner, but his pattern of life was to work hard, work hard teaching them the word, and then work hard making tents so he could earn money to pay for the expenses that he had. He worked so hard so that we might not be a burden to you. Paul loved these people, and he didn't want to put a financial burden on them for the sake of the gospel. His motive for doing this was love. <coughs> Excuse me. This is the opposite of what some of these lazy believers were doing as they became a burden to the church. Paul's love and self-sacrifice is even in greater, seen in greater light in verse 9. He certainly had the right to have been helped along by this church. Paul taught a laborer is worthy of their hire. However, he voluntarily waived this right in order to give the Thessalonians a good example to follow. Paul had taught them about hard work that puts no burden on the church as being a model to them, and he had thought they would follow his example. In verse 10, Paul had given them verbal instruction when he was with them. He had already told them when they were together that if someone's not willing to work, then they shouldn't eat. In other words, 
Do not support a person who is hungry when they refuse to work and they're perfectly able to do so. The church has no responsibility to support lazy, non-working Christians. But the church should teach about the importance of being a hard worker. God condemns laziness. You only have to read through the book of Proverbs to see again and again and again. Look at the sluggard. Clearly, this is not regarding people who are out of work because of a physical crisis or have lost their job and are looking for a new job. That's not who we're talking about. Work was a part of the plan of God, as I said, from before the fall. When sin came into the world, obviously work became a lot harder. But it was still necessary. But sadly, you had people in this wonderful growing church that decided they would simply ignore this particular instruction that Paul had given them and stop working. In verse 11, it had been reported to Paul that there were some people that were busy, all right, but they were not busy working. In light of the fact that they were excited about the return of Christ, it became their reason to no longer work. As one commentator said, we may picture them sitting around for hours in the bazaars and little shops of other members, making a nuisance of themselves, trying to unsettle the stable, member, uh, to unsettle the stable members with their fanatical notions. And then they'd return to their homes and not have any money for, to buy food, and so they would ask church members or the leaders if you could help provide for my need tonight. So how do you discipline a church member who has clearly been taught the truth and then refuses to obey it? Verse 12, Paul says very directly, Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Stop doing what you're doing, nothing, and this is what you're supposed to do. People have to know the right thing to do in order to correct the wrong thing they're doing. Paul makes it very clear what the right thing to do is. Settle down, get a job, support yourself, support your family. Elsewhere, he said, it's worse than an unbeliever if a man doesn't support his own family. Church discipline begins with confronting someone about the sin that they're doing. If they repent and respond to God's word, oh, you're right, it's over. It's done. The goal of church discipline is to produce proper behavior in the life of a believer. It's not about punishing anyone. The goal in discipline is always to correct wrong behavior, just as a parent would do with their own children. The truth has to be spoken and spoken in love. In verse 13, Paul encourages obedient believers not to grow weary or be tempted to fall into the same kind of sin. It would be tempting. Let's just hang out and do nothing all day, and somebody else can make our meal. When the faithful believers from the church saw that some weren't working, but were still doing okay, they might have been tempted to join them. But the principle is this. Church discipline requires you to not be involved in the same sin of the person that's being disciplined, obviously. Once you have gone to the sinning party and confronted with the, with them with their sin, as I said, hopefully they go, you're right, I'm going to change, I want to walk in obedience to the Lord. But if they refuse... Take a special note of that man, verse 14 says, and do not associate with him. In other words, do not have close fellowship with that person. They are not to be permitted to share the Lord's Supper. You don't have them for dinner, 1 Corinthians 5.11. There is to be no public sharing with them so that they will be put to shame. The whole point is you hope that this will cause them to repent and be restored to fellowship that they are now desperately needing and missing. 
realized this was the only church in town. And so when this was done, you really were isolated. Today, if you attend a church that actually practices church discipline, which is pretty rare, people who are being disciplined just tend to get up and leave and go to the church down the street. So there's little to no impact on their lives to repent and obey. Well, Paul gives another instruction concerning church discipline. No one is to be hasty or nasty rather or hostile in any way, but rather when you see this person, admonish him as you would your own brother. Affirmation of your love has to accompany, accompany the appeal to repent. Paul is warning these believers to make sure their attitude is right, that you have a heart of tenderness and concern when you speak to others about the truth. People we love are people we want the very best for. So if you love someone, you will tell them the truth of God's word, even if you know they're not going to be happy with what you say. So far from our study, we have seen that God wants us to obey him. And if we refuse to do that, he has a way of disciplining us. It's not always through the church. Sometimes it's through all kinds of circumstances that comes into our lives. Sometimes he uses health issues. He uses a variety of ways to get our attention. In light of Christ's return, we are to carry on our normal responsibilities of work and not allow prophecy to be such an obsession that it leads us to be irresponsible. God feels very strongly regarding the sin of laziness. That ought to speak volumes, ladies, to you and to me, because how we use our time matters to God. That mindset is that I'm going to do this, this, and this, so then now I'm free to do whatever I want. That's really faulty. Every part of your day, every moment of your day, is to be under his control. Remember, Jesus told that parable about a slave who did nothing with the money that was left to him by his master that he was supposed to invest in while he was gone. Jesus called him a wicked, lazy slave. Proverbs remind us the sluggard. Go observe the ant. Follow their example. They're hardworking. And then there's that Proverbs 31 woman who we love and hate. Um, who has given us an example of every measure of work. I mean, selling real estate, making belts. She's, she's getting up early, getting everybody ready, making their clothes. I mean, on and on it goes. She was a, a very industrious woman. Churches obedient to the word of God are churches that carry out church discipline. They don't sweep sin under the rug and ignore it. As a believer, we are to appeal to a sister in Christ to repent of her sin if that is something she's practicing, and we know it. They are to be spoken to again with another friend or witness, and if there is no change of heart, then you hand it over to the church leadership to appeal to them. Next, do not let sinning believers use you to sin more. You don't help a lazy believer by enabling them to continue in a lifestyle contrary to Scripture. And I realize sometimes that situation... It's not as cut and dry as it always may seem. Where is the line that we draw to help? And where is we cross the line to enable? You have to ask the Lord for wisdom. In the first five verses we saw, we're reminded again of how critical prayer is to the work of any ministry where the word of God is proclaimed. There is power in the word and there is power in prayer. 
We are privileged to be involved on a daily basis in ministry, even by sitting in your chair in your own house, by offering prayer support to others. Be careful that your only prayer list is limited to yourself, that you don't have a lack of balance in your prayer life, failing to see the big picture of the needs of others around you, the needs of ministry around you, and not just around you, around the globe. Paul concludes the letter. He says, Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Like all of us, Paul knew they needed to be reminded of the peace of God for every circumstance you face, especially if they're going to deal with this situation and obedience. The issue Paul just dealt with was certainly been unsettling for many. And so the focus must be on God, who is able to give peace in the midst of conflict, peace in the midst of suffering. He is the Lord of peace, and it is he who is the one to be Lord of our lives. And when we let him reign over us, he makes possible peace in our heart. When we sin, when we refuse to give up an attitude, refuse to forgive, refuse to stop being impatient or whatever, we really don't have peace. Not only does his peace enable us to obey Jesus, but his presence, knowing he is with us, is what also brings us peace, that we're right with him. And that's why Paul closes by reminding them of God's presence. Paul often wrote his letters through a secretary, and when he did that, he usually added his own identifying signature so readers knew he really was the author. And this would have been especially important in light of the apparently forged letter that these believers had received from someone else that wasn't Paul, that had the doctrinal error. God's grace is necessary for us to be able to do his will and for his glory. So my prayer is that each of you does know this peace of God, and that is only possible by faith, repenting of your sin and calling on Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior from your sin then the war with God is over and you're at peace with him. And my prayer for those of us who who know him is that we would walk in obedience to his clear commands. How dare we ignore or rationalize away our sinful attitudes, our sinful actions. How many times have you been convicted of something last year, last month, last week, and then you go, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Oh yeah, I'm not supposed to be doing that. We need to address our sin. If you're his child, he will discipline you because he loves you and he wants what's best for you. And it's so much better to repent of sin when we are convicted and to start on a moment-by-moment basis putting to death our flesh and choosing to walk in obedience to his word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truths in this chapter. I pray that we would be women of the word, women who know your peace because we walk in obedience, women who are a powerful, powerful force for the gospel spreading because we pray. Lord, I pray for each woman here that you'll give them renewed strength to walk through the rest of their day today and to walk in obedience to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, ladies. Thank you.